if you have a Bible, please turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3. We are finally making our way into Genesis chapter 3 after um, several weeks in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So let me read this to you, and uh, I'll pray. I'm going to read till verse 13. And um, if you've been here at all in the last several weeks, we've been in a series, or in the book of Genesis, but talking about Imago Dei, which is Latin for image of God. And what we've been saying is that because we're made in the image of God, we're made with, in, in certain ways. And one of the ways that we're made is we're made and we're built for relationship, kind of intrinsically involved in the fact that we're created by God is that we weren't created to be alone. And God created Eve for Adam. The first application of that is that man is not meant to be alone. The second application of that is marriage. And we talked about marriage. And then last week we talked about work and culture and building culture and making culture. These are our cult- that was our cultural mandate. So this is kind of how we were made. Now, there's a, obviously there's a problem there. If I mention relationships, if I mention marriage, or if I mention work or culture, work is hard. It's drudgery. A lot of us hate our jobs. We hate the fact that we work. Um, marriages fall apart. Relationships are broken. What the heck happened? Genesis 3 answers that question. So allow me to read it to you. It's very familiar to all of us. I'm sure that you've heard it in one way or another, but let me read down to verse 13. Actually, to verse 9, and I'll pray. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, this is the serpent speaking, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was uh, to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Let's pray. Lord, I I know that um, this text is very familiar to a lot of us, and I pray that you'd give us wisdom and understanding and insight into this text. I ask you for your help to have a clear mind right now, um, a clear thought. I know that there's something that you want to speak directly to us, and so I pray, God, that you would anoint your word and anoint this time, God. I pray, Jesus, for people who do not have faith in you, who are find it difficult to trust in you. I pray that would be the thrust of this sermon this morning, or that we'd be able to place our trust in God. I know it's difficult for some of us. I know our minds get in the way. Sometimes our hearts get in the way. I pray that we would trust in God. Restore relationship, Lord, I pray, among us, with each other, but most importantly with you. And whatever you need to do to do that, I pray you do that this, na- this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the strengths of Christianity, one of the things that makes 
Christianity and the Christian narrative and the Christian story um, so strong is its realism. The fact that the Bible and Christianity wrestles and deals with the things that you and I know to be true. It doesn't brush them under some religious, unexplainable, untouchable rug and says, well, yeah, there's problems in the world and there's this in the world, but let's just not deal with that. The Christian message fits with the world that you and I know, a world that's broken, a world that is difficult to relate to people, a world that breaks your heart, leaves our body in decay. This sort of world, the Bible deals with this sort of world, explains the world that we live in. We all know that there's sin. We all know that there's brokenness in this world. There's a war that goes on inside of us. There's a war that goes on outside of us. And we may know this, admittedly or not, that there is a great evil on this earth. And what Genesis chapter 3 does is it says, yes, there is evil, and this is the origin of it. This is where it comes from. This is when it enters into the human story. It doesn't necessarily talk about the origin of evil in general. It talks about our origin, how evil has entered into our hearts. Up to this point in Genesis, we've been in a garden, as we've been talking about. It's a perfect garden. The narrative calls it the Garden of Eden. We all know about this garden. And what this garden was was this. This is what the garden was, as we explained it over the last several weeks. The garden was the weaving together of God, humanity, creation, all of it woven together in justice, in fulfillment, in delight. Another name for this, the Hebrew writers and the prophets called this shalom. This was the peace of God, the shalom of God. And the shalom is this, and this is what Cornelius Plantinga famously said, shalom is the way things ought to be. Shalom is the way things ought to be. We might not all agree so if I asked you, what is paradise to you? We might not all agree what paradise is. We might all have different answers. Like last week when I shared the story of the fisherman who fished for tuna and sold it to his, his friends in his village and chilled all day long after fishing. Like that's paradise to me. I want that sort of life. Maybe paradise to you is out being out in nature or a land where there's no war and tolerance prevails. Or maybe it's in the suburbs where everyone has a driveway and everyone lives perfectly and, you know, they're 2.5 kids and a dog. Maybe your paradise is social. Maybe it's economic. Maybe it's living in a society where there's no graffiti. Maybe it's living in a society where there is graffiti, but it's not called graffiti. It's called street art. And it's good. No matter what your idea of paradise is, we all have it. And this is why. Every one of us, to some degree, every one of us possesses this notion, this collective hope of a world in which things are as they ought to be. All of us do. Whether you're trying to find that in, in sort of some sort of economic piece, some sort of social piece, some sort of tolerance, some sort of cleanliness, like just, I just want everything clean and in order, whether it's through government, whether you're the guy that wants to build the island out in the ocean and away from government in its own little privatized city, whatever it is, we all have this notion of this is not the way it ought to be. We all have this notion. And the reason why we know that it's not the way it ought to be, because we all have this collective memory of the garden. Humanity has a collective memory of everything at peace. This is why we want peace with our environment. This is why we want peace with animals. This is why we want peace with each other. This is why we want peace on some spiritual level with God. We all have this collective memory of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. All of us do. And this is what the Bible preaches. This is what the Bible teaches. 
And whatever this is, this is what Adam and Eve lived in. They lived in paradise. They had perfect bodies. They had perfect minds. They had perfect food, a perfect environment, a perfect relationship with each other, and a perfect relationship with God. It actually even says this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. They were both naked and they were not ashamed. Some of you guys are going, that's easy. (laughs) This isn't just physically naked. This is emotionally naked, spiritually naked, complete openness to the other. I was reading this article, a nudist article, which sounds really weird. I didn't really even want to say this, but... um, It was an article about somebody that was doing therapy and the way that they were trying to expose the other person themselves was through nudity. And so this person was writing, I know it sounds horrible, but listen, the psychologist said this and someone was critiquing this this psychologist and said, if you're always naked, you're hiding something. I thought that was brilliant. If you're always naked, you're really hiding something because we can be physically naked with people and still be hiding something. Actually, you can always be physically naked with somebody and be hiding something. That's the point. But this is not how it was in the garden. Not only were they physically naked, they were emotionally, spiritually, they were completely exposed to God and one another. But something happened. Eugene Peterson, who wrote the translation of the Bible called The Message, said this. A catastrophe has occurred. We no longer, we are no longer in continuity with our good beginning. We have been separated from it by disaster. We are also, of course, separated from our good end. We are, in other words, in the middle of a mess. We not, we're not what we once were, but we can't become what we were going to become. We're in the middle of this huge mess. Sin, as humanity knows it, begins here in Genesis 3. Sin begins in Genesis 3, and it does not end until Revelation chapter 21, where it says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And, the de- and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So there's basically, in your entire Bible, if you were to hold up your Bible, there are basically four chapters in your entire Bible that have no sin. Four chapters. There are 66 books in your Bible. Four of those chapters are without sin. Now let me explain what I mean by sin, because you hear that word thrown around a lot in church. Almost every single Sunday... When you read your Bible, it's there throughout the scripture except for four chapters. Let me explain why sin is so offensive. When I talk about sin, I know sin isn't a very popular subject, especially in this city. There are many reasons for this, but let me give you an introductory version of sin. This is what sin is. God hates sin not just because it violates his law. That's part of it, but that's not the only reason why. Even more practically than that, the reason why God hates sin is because it violates shalom. It violates peace. It breaks peace. It interferes with the way things are supposed to be. Sin breaks in and interferes with the way that God created it. God created a world to work like this, to function like this, to be beautiful, perfection, beauty, harmony. We talked all about this in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And what Genesis 3 says is that sin breaks that harmony. So, to say there are four chapters in the Bible that do not have sin would be more practically to say there are four chapters in the Bible where everything was the way they were supposed to be. So what happened? Genesis chapter 3 happened. Genesis 3 says the serpent, 
was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, this is a real event in chapter 3. This actually happened, and it had real consequences, consequences that are felt today in war, in broken hearts, in disease-ridden bodies. This was a real event. I will agree, though, that the language used to describe this event is pictorial and somewhat symbol-laden. But what I want to show you today through this narrative as a kind of an introduction in Genesis chapter 3, what I want to show you is that it's describing a reality that you and I live in every single day. Genesis 3 is describing a reality that you and I live in every single day. So I want to start with this. First, I want to talk about the seduction of this serpent. The seduction of the serpent. Before we we, we talk about it, let me first um, talk about Eve for a second. Let me, um, I don't mean to say, let me clear Eve's name, but... Eve is always under a lot of heat, right? Whenever there's fall, we always blame Eve. Like, Eve. My wife even jokingly does it sometimes. Like, that girl. Like, you know, that, that, sort of, that sort of thing. And we do this. And sometimes she's depicted as this temptress who tricked Adam into eating the apple. There is actually a Bible, I am not joking, a real, real Bible. Um, a kid's Bible. That's called the Magna Bible. It's done in Japanese graphic novel style. And it tells the story of Genesis 3. And it tells the story of Eve acting alone. Eve's like over here, and then Adam's over there, and Eve's like talking with the serpent, and she's like, oh, it's good. And she runs over to Adam, like, have a bite. And Adam's like, I don't think we're supposed to. No, have a bite. Please, come on. And he's like, okay. And this is, this is the slide, not joking. This is what it is. Adam goes, Adam says, it's good, but God did say not to, and then she's like, hee hee, girls can make guys do anything. And then she throws the peace sign. I don't know why the peace sign. I don't know if it's like, peace out, shalom, peace out, peace of God, see you later, wonderful, Eden, I don't know. But this is normally, okay, you can take it down now, it's kind of weird. Um, this is normally how Genesis 3 is depicted. Like Adam and God are together, and Eve and the serpent are together. And even the serpent, Eve, that temptress, that beautiful, beautiful creation of God who is, you know, a little bit morally weak, falls in line with Satan and then tempts Adam to eat the fruit. And this cartoon falls in line with this misinterpreting of this biblical story in order to blame women for everything that's wrong in the world and to keep them in their place. Woman, you fell. You had your chance. Let men take over now. This, of course, is not true. The narrative is clear that Adam is there the whole time. Every single time the word you, when Satan says you, it's plural in Hebrew, meaning them. And after Eve bites the fruit, it says she gives it to her husband, who was with her there the whole time. Later, the New Testament writers look back on this account and say that Eve was deceived, but Adam sinned. Some people think that's because Adam named all the animals, and he named them according to their likeness, according to their character. He knew that the serpent was crafty. Now, this word crafty in Hebrew is not negative, by the way. It can actually go both ways. It it means shrewd. It means it can be positive or negative. Adam knew the character of the serpent. And so scholars believe that because he knew that, he sinned. Eve was deceived. But look how the serpent approached Eve. 
This is how the serpent approached Eve. He went to Eve and said, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say? I mean, this is such a tricky question. It's insidious, really. It could be read like this. So, God has actually said you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? God has actually said that? Now, when someone asks you this, God has actually said it draws you into an argument, doesn't it? You can't just say yes or no. God, so, so wait, God actually said you can't eat of any tree in the garden. You can't just go, yes. That doesn't make sense. You can't just say no either. It draws you into the argument where you have to interpret what God said, where you have to explain. It would be like someone walking up to you and say, so God has actually said you can't have fun as a Christian. Now, if you said that to someone, it draws you into the argument, doesn't it? You can't just go, no. Well, I mean, it's not supposed to be the goal, but I mean, kind of. No, God is your goal, but you can't have fun too, and it draws you in. This is, this is the genius of the question. So God has actually said this? No, he hasn't said that. Wait, yes, he did say that. I mean, wait. And so it draws you into to interpret what God has said. And this might be why she exaggerates a little bit. To prove that God did say this. And this is what Eve says. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it. God never said that. Lest you die. First of all, I mean, I'm not, we can't say, well, I would have said, we, we hindsight's twenty twenty. we all would have fallen. Every single one of us. But notice this, though. Notice this. And this is, this is our tendency. We do this every day. Notice she doesn't, she could say, actually, no, serpent, we can eat of every tree in the garden. It's all good except for one. All of it's good except for one. We can eat of every single one. We can even eat from the tree of life. The only one we can't eat of is one tree. And it's funny how she places the untouchable tree central. But we can't eat of the tree in the midst of the garden. Wasn't the tree of life in the midst of the garden? It's like she centers on the forbidden tree. It's like that becomes central in her whole understanding of the garden. Yeah, um, we can't, in the, the one in the, in the middle, the one in the midst, the one, the one there, we just can't eat from that one. And she adds, you shall not even touch it. But God never says, you, you can't touch it. This might be her way of interpretation. Maybe Adam and Eve got together and like, okay, Adam's like, okay, listen, I can't even touch that tree, all right? Because if I touch it, I know I'm going to eat it. So we can't touch it. We can't even go near it. Maybe it's that. I don't know. But what a clever snake. Drawing her into an argument like this. Drawing them into interpretation. But then Eve gives the reason why they can't eat it. She said, lest we die. If we eat of this tree, we're going to die. Now here the serpent moves from seduction and temptation to an all-out attack. He doesn't seduce anymore. He just starts attacking. And this is what he says. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So there are two attacks going on here. The first is on God's judgment, and the second is on God's goodness. And these are not ancient attacks. These are modern. These happen to every single one of us. They happen to me this morning. They happen to us in a million ways every day with the minutia of life and the giant decisions of life. Whether it's who I'm going to marry or what am I going to wear. 
There are things in our life. This is what happens inside our own hearts every single day. First, God's judgment. The serpent says this, God's not going to judge you. There is no eternal punishment. There is no cosmic consequences for your actions. You will not surely die. Actually, um, in Hebrew, the negative not is at the head of the clause. So as soon as um, Eve says, we can't eat it lest we die, the serpent says, no. That's what it says in Hebrew. It goes, no, you will not die. Don't think that you're going to die. There is no judgment. This is the first recorded contradiction of something God has said. And the first thing denied is the doctrine of judgment. God said that, but it won't happen to you. This is a very modern idea. I mean, who believes in the God of judgment today? Isn't that one of the first doctrines to go out of your head? Isn't that one of the first things you don't believe about God? God's not a God that judges. Are you serious? Come on. That is so old. This challenge is not new. It's almost hate speech to speak publicly about God's judgment. The second thing is on God's goodness. And once you doubt God's judgment, it's really easy to doubt God's goodness. And the serpent says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, what the serpent says is that God is not good. God is not great, like the title of Christopher Hitchens' book. You know why God is not good? You know why God is not great, Eve? Because he's selfish and he's deceptive and he's trying to prevent you from achieving his level, level of greatness. He's trying to keep you under his thumb. He's trying to keep you down. Look, at that's what it says. God knows that when you eat of it, you're going to be like him. He wants to keep you down. That command is not there to offer you loving protection. Are you kidding me? It's there to rule you. It's there to keep you low. It's there to keep you bored. It's there to keep you from more than what you were, you, you were destined for. Keeping you from the possibility of being more than God ever intended you to be. And this is what happens to us in a million ways every day. We doubt God's goodness. We doubt God's commands. And we don't think they are there for our good. I don't think there's a lot of us in here who read the Bible and get to the commands of God and are going like, yes, that's right. I believe that one. That's a good one right there. Thou shalt not. Yep, that's, wow, thank you, God. No one does that. No one says that. No one looks at the commandments of God as if it gives life, as if it gives flourishing, human flourishing, as if it gives hope. All of the, every single commandment we read of God is narrow and restrictive. And so we take God's commands and we shave off the parts we don't like and we come up with our own. Don't get drunk. Well, that means on the weekdays because that's irresponsible. <laughs> don't commit fornication or adultery with someone we don't love. Don't lie if it's going to hurt someone. You do this with every single command. You think you're some sort of exception. We think that, well, the reason why God said that is either he doesn't really know my situation or he's trying to keep me from having good. And I know he wants me to have good, so I'm going to do this. And where this comes from is doubting the goodness of God, doubting that the commands are there for our good. And we just don't get this. We can't see it. We're enticed and seduced to believe otherwise. This is day in and day out. This is a lie that is as old as history. 
And what's implicit in the narrative is the, is the suggestion that, we, that the serpent here knows God better than the woman knows God, who was made in God's image. Since the serpent can penetrate God's mind and claim to know what God knows. He says, God knows, meaning I know too. God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened. Francis Schaeffer writes about this tree, this forbidden tree in his book on Genesis. He says this, God has not made a bad tree. He has simply made a tree. And there is nothing intrinsic about the tree that is different from any way in any way than any other trees. Rather, God has simply confronted man with a choice. He could have just as well said, don't cross this stream or don't climb this mountain. He is saying, believe me and stand in your place as a creature, not as one who is autonomous. Believe me and love me as a creature to his creator and all will be well. This is the place for which I have made you. It's not that this tree was some sort of enlightening tree. It was a tree that God said, don't eat of it. Trust me. Trust that I know what's better for you. Trust that I've made you. And I know this is so hard to hear. I know there's something in us that's like, no, I, I know what's best. And herein lies the thrust of the temptation. You shall be like God. What does it mean to be like God? It means this. The tree wasn't this. The tree wasn't the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, meaning you have wisdom. Like, do you want to be really wise? You know what this tree means? And I think you need to see this um, a little bit differently. This tree, good and evil uh, in Hebrew, meant um, good welfare or, or, or bad. Like, like, you could know what's good and what's bad. Basically, what this tree represented is this. You can choose for yourself good and bad by eating this tree. You don't need God to tell you what's good. And you don't need God to tell you what's bad. You know who, who's the only person that can judge that? You. So you eat from that tree. That's what this tree means. It's you choose what's good for you and you choose what's bad for you. You don't lean on God for what's good. You don't lean on God for what's bad. You are your own God. You can be like God making your own decisions. Make, being completely independent of a God who created you. You can be your own God. Decide for yourself. That's the point. So it's not that the serpent holds out the prospect of a full capacity of knowledge or to be like God. Remember, we're made in the image of God. We're already like God. It's actually the essence of the temptation was for independence. The essence of temptation was for independence that enables a man to decide for himself what will help him or hinder him. I can decide for myself. Thank you very much. And what the serpent does in plain language is set up an alternative to following God, a mark of rebellion. Here's how you rebel. Here's how you get independence. As D.A. Carson says, this is the de-godding of God. You can de-god God right now. He doesn't have to be God anymore. You can de-god him of that. You can be your own God. You can be like God. Just eat the tree. Basically, this is saying that I don't need some God telling me how and when I can have sex and how I can express my sexuality. I don't need a God telling me what is right and what is wrong. I can decide those things for myself. I don't need some God telling me how to get married or who I should marry. I'll decide that for myself. I don't need some God telling me what I should do with my money or how to treat the environment or how I should spend my time. I can do that by myself. I'll decide that for myself. 
And we eat from this tree every single day when we make the decision to trust ourselves for wisdom. Now, the huge point is this. Up to this point, God has provided what's good for humanity. Up to this point, God said, light, it was good. Seasons, they're good. Land, it's good. This is good. That's good. I've made this created order and I caused it to function and all of it is good. It's harmonious. It's perfect. However, look what happens. The serpent leaves, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Wait, wait. Up to this point, who decides what's good? God does. And what, what happens with this woman? What happens with Adam and Eve? All of a sudden, they decide what's good. I'll decide what's good for me. I'll decide what's good for my marriage. I'll decide what's good. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and there was the delight to the eyes, and there was, the tree was, was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. So in Genesis 1 and 2, there's this phrase that's used over and over again. God saw it, and it was good. God saw it, and it was good. And God created everything good. He created light and night and day and sea and dry ground and animals and mammals and birds, man and woman, and it was very good. Then God put man and woman in charge and gave them access to all the good that God created. And Adam and Eve were participants and had the privilege of enjoying the good story of God. And Adam and Eve had all the good they would ever have needed. But they wanted more. In Genesis 3, the centerpiece of the temptation story is around this question of good. Good and evil. She saw that it was good. The narrative clue to the story is the woman assuming God's role in knowing the good before she ate the fruit. And that was her last thought before the fall. It says the woman saw that the tree was good. Up until now, in the, in the narrative, the expression, and he saw that it was good, is reserved for God alone. What this means is that they thought that they could become good and know what's good apart from God. We can know good and evil apart from God. We can take over this story now. Thank you very much. We got it from here, God. And you know what the fall is? You know what sin is? Sin is hijacking the story of God. That's what sin is. God writes this story, and it's just us taking it and hijacking it, making the story about us being bent inward. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Whenever, wherever man attacks the concrete word of God with the weapon of a, of a principle or an idea of God, there he has become the Lord of God. I hear this all the time as a pastor. You may hear it all the time as a Christian. I can't believe that God would actually require... I can't believe God would actually send someone to. I can't believe that a God who, there is a God who only makes one way to eternal life. I can't believe that God would, wouldn't honor my sincere attempt at. At that point, when you do that, you know what you do? Bonhoeffer says, rightly, that you place yourself in the place of God, you de-God God, and you become the Lord of God. And it's no coincidence that this was the first temptation. It still goes over really well today. So what am I saying? Am I saying, all right, everybody, if you obey, all will be well? No, because we don't really have time to get into it today. We're going to get to it next week. 
As soon as they ate, the most ultimate irony happens. They see, their eyes are open, but the only thing they see is they're naked. And you're like, um, we kind of knew that already. We knew that in chapter 2. This is not the naked that you're thinking, it's shame. They cover themselves. They hide from God. They hide in the trees, which is ironic in itself. They sew fig leaves together to hide themselves, to hide their differences from each other. They run from God. You and I hide. Some of you are hiding in this church. You hide at church. You hide in your obedience. If I just keep obeying God, I can avoid God. If I just keep going to church, I can keep my distance from God. Some of us hide with just absolute running far, far away from God. Some of us hide in San Francisco. I'm just going to move to the city. And that's where I'll hide from God. I'm not saying obey and all will be well. Because that's not the point. What happened, what died, was their relationship with God. At that moment, their relationship with God died. It's kind of a big chunk of biblical history here, but as soon as they were banished from the garden, we'll get to this next week, God put an angel with a flaming sword to guard the way back to the tree of life. When Israel had a tabernacle, and inside the tabernacle was a place where God dwelt, they had these curtains separating humanity from the holy place the most holy place. And on these giant curtains were embroidered two angels with a flaming sword saying, you can't go back in. You can't get into the presence of God. And what happened when Jesus died on the cross, it says that that veil was torn in half. This isn't a teaching on obeying God. This isn't a teaching like, hey, you guys want to be really good boys and girls and Christians, then obey God. The point is that our relationship with God is completely broken. And Jesus is the only one that restores that relationship with God. And what happens when that relationship with God is restored is that we can once again begin to trust God. Can you begin to trust God? I'm not telling everyone in here, hey, you guys better obey all the Ten Commandments and obey all the laws and all the prophets. You'll fail as soon as you hit the street. Trust in Christ who brings us into God and then begin to trust God. So when you read something and you come to a place, you're like, I know, I know what I think would be good, but this is what it says here. God, help me trust you. Not, I'm going to obey God so that, so that I can like go to heaven and like you're going to love me and I'm going to be good. No, I'm already loved because of Christ. Teach me how to trust you. Teach me how to, when you forbid something, see it as my good. When you call me to do something, I see it as my good. Help me, God, to trust you again. This is what was lost at the fall. Adam didn't trust God. They didn't believe God's judgment, and they didn't believe God's goodness. But what Jesus does, he brings us back into that right relationship where we could once again trust God. 
where we could look at God's commands, we can look at God's word, we can look at this and go, God, I'm going to trust you with the most insane things in my life that go so counterintuitive and so countercultural. I'm going to trust you in, in this. I'm going to trust what your word says. And the only way that we get back in to a relationship with God is through Jesus Christ who became for us the penalty, the judgment of our sin. We're going to read again. We don't have time. We're not going to get to it until next week. It's called the Proto-Evangelion, one of my favorite words in the Bible. It means proto-evangelism, which means the first mention of the gospel. And it happens when God said, serpent, I'm going to crush your head. That was done through Jesus Christ. That serpent, it doesn't say it here, but it goes on to say in Revelation, that serpent is Satan. That serpent of old, the devil, who leads the whole world astray. And the first mention of the gospel is when God says, through the seed of woman will come a man who will crush the head of Satan, who would restore us back to God, who would renew our lives, who would make it to where we can believe and trust again. So I want to encourage you guys as we worship to repent of places in your life where you're not trusting God. This might be a huge sacrifice to some of you. Like there's some things that you have to like say no to. Like you're going to have to turn away from. You're going to say, no, I can't do that anymore. I'm going to trust God's word and not what I think is best. If you don't know, if you're like, well, what if I don't know God's word? Then, then get around some other Christians that do and like submit it to them. Like, I think it's saying this. Would you tell me what it says? Stop being a judge in and of yourself, outside of God and outside of Christian community. You can't do that. So some of us, what that means is that you're going to have to like say no, to, turn your back on some things. Repent. Let's believe in God. Let's trust in God. Let's pray. Lord, I know that I... There's so many things that, that I know your word says that it's hard to trust in sometimes. For me personally, this is week in and week out. But I trust in you, God. I pray that, God, that you would make us a people who believe in you more than we believe in ourselves. We trust in you more than we trust in our own thoughts. God, and I, and I say and I pray that this would be a prayer that's echoed throughout this church this morning. Is that we can't judge for ourselves what's good and what's evil. We need your help, God. So we fall on Jesus. And we ask you, God, to cleanse us from unrighteousness. I pray that you would restore relationship in here. People feel distant from you, separated from you due to sin, rebellion. Maybe there was that decisive moment in their life. You know, if they, if they chose that thing, they'd be rebelling against God. I thank you that you're not just the God of second chances. We've, we're all way beyond that. And that we can return still. Jesus, be glorified right now and magnified as we worship you. As you become object of our adoration and joy and love. Jesus' name.